Our Bible reading this morning is from the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 17 through 24 of Genesis chapter 3. This is the second sermon in our Jesus in Genesis series. So all the sermons in this Advent series will be from the book of Genesis, and they'll show that already in Genesis, Christ's redemption, Christ's coming is anticipated. It just shows the length and the strength of God's plan. Today I'll be reading, uh, as I said, from chapter 3, and these words are come right after what Christy read last week. Last week, Christy talked about the seed of the woman and the curse that falls on our relationship with God. This will continue uh, the curse, and it will, you'll see how the curse from human sin also falls on creation. Let's listen. To Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. As you know, and as I've made very clear over the years, I grew up in Canada. And um, maybe what you don't know is the place I grew up, you think of Canada as north. The place that I grew up is actually not that much further north in terms of latitude than we are here. But it was indeed a lot colder, mostly because of its relationship to the Great Lakes. And uh, for me, growing up, winter was long and it was hard. I mean, as I remember it, from mid-November all the way through the end of March, the air was frigid, the trees were bare, and the ground was frozen solid. And I have a particular feeling for this because when I was a young man, I was a paper boy, okay? When I was like 13 years old, I was a paper boy. And I say that uh, wondering if anyone here under 25 even knows what a paper boy is anymore. <laughs> Just to fill you in, paper boy, I had about 40 papers I had to deliver. You'd wear a big satchel over your shoulder. And, and this is different, I think, than some of you. Some of you are thinking, oh, yeah, I was a paper boy too. And you did it on your bike. I wasn't allowed to do it on my bike. So I had to take that pack and I slogged onto people's porches and put the papers up there. And I did that all year long, all winter long. And winter did seem awfully long. March was the worst. Because by March, you were so sick of winter. 
and you'd have to, tr I remember going all the way up Hudson Drive and all the way back down to Grand, crossing all those lawns in the cold and they were hard as a rock and the clods of the earth were like broken concrete under my feet. And if that continued into April, if the meteorologist said that there was going to be snow sometime in April, heaven help me, stay out of my way all day long. But spring always came, right? Spring always came. Two months later, at the end of May, the grass would be green and it would be thick and it felt like the whole world was growing again. I have a memory when I think I was about eight of lying in the, in the lawn, just lying down by myself in the backyard lawn of my parents with my face in the grass, just looking at the grass as close as I could see it and feeling like, the world was so lush that if I just watched, I could see the grass grow. The world felt so alive, it felt like if I had taken a, a metal bar and put it in the ground, it could not help but grow into a lamppost. It was a good feeling lying there on the grass. I felt deeply content. Can you relate to these experiences? I think you can, even if you were never a Canadian paper boy, and even if you never lay with your face in the grass to try to see it grow, I think you can feel what I felt in those moments, because I think you all know how the natural world out there has a power to affect our spirits. The natural world out there has a power to affect our inner life. That's what I want you to see this morning. That's why I started with those two stories to show how nature and the way nature presents itself affects our spirit. And that's no accident. That is the way that God absolutely intended it. That is the way God made things. If you read Genesis 1 through 3, you see that God intended us to be in a relationship with creation. We are meant to be in a relationship with the natural world out there. We're created for it, and that's why the natural world can have such a powerful effect on us. The way God created it, it was meant to be a two-way relationship, just like any other relationship you have in your life. So we were meant to flow out to creation. Genesis 2.15, we're given the garden and we're told to take care of it, to tend it, to steward it, to help it grow. That's us flowing out to creation. But creation also flows towards us, right? I mean, we get beauty from creation and delight from creation. We get food from creation. Creation even speaks to us. The heavens are telling the glory of God. If we're listening, creation will even tell us God's glory. So we're meant to be in this two-way relationship with creation. And at the beginning, this relationship was completely good and completely life-giving. And even though human sin has, has damaged that relationship, which I'll get to more later, we can still feel the original goodness, right? The, the original goodness of that relationship is not lost. Whenever we are out in the world and we feel blessed or delighted by what we see, we are experiencing the original goodness of that relationship as God intended it. When an eight-year-old kid lays his head in the grass and feels content, when we stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and go, wow. When we look up 
at a night sky full of stars and we feel small. In those moments, we're feeling the original blessing of creation and the relationship as it is intended to be. But of course, things are not the way they're supposed to be anymore. And that relationship has been damaged. A curse has fallen on the ground. We just read about it. Thorns and thistles. Cursed is the ground because of you, says the Lord. And all of a sudden, this relationship that was supposed to be so good, that was supposed to be such a blessing, is fraught. It's complicated. It's our fault. We're the ones who sinned. We ruined the relationship. But now, when we go out into the world, we don't always experience it as blessing. Right? Sometimes we feel it as threat. When a child wakes up in the middle of the night and for some reason they're just randomly afraid of the dark. That child is feeling the weight of the creational curse. When you feel grouchy after another gray day in Michigan in April and another cold day and that affects your spirit, what are you feeling? You're feeling the weight of the curse. The relationship has been damaged. It was supposed to be good and life-giving, and now we're waiting and waiting and waiting for it to be fixed. Waiting is what we do in Advent, of course. And in Advent, as we shape it here, our waiting is for all kinds of restoration. We're, of course, waiting for our relationship to be restored with God. That's, we want to see him face to face. That's at the center of what we're waiting for. We also talk about waiting for the relationship between one another to be fixed, for our swords to be beaten into plowshares, for peace to come. We wait for that at Advent. But we are also absolutely waiting for that relationship with the natural world to be restored, to be made the way it's supposed to be. And we're not the only ones waiting for it. Creation is waiting too. The other party in this relationship is also waiting. Romans 8. The whole creation waits in eager anticipation for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in order that the creation itself may be brought into the glory and freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, waiting, waiting, waiting for its redemption waiting for this relationship to be the way it's supposed to be. Human beings and creation. We're like a couple old friends. The friendship goes way back, and it used to be free and easy. It used to be great. But then we did something. We messed it up. And now there's tension in that relationship. And no matter how hard we work and no matter how hard we try, we can't seem to make it better. We need help. We need a mediator. From the very beginning, since Genesis 3, since that curse fell on the ground, God has been working not only to fix our relationship with him, not only to fix our relationship with each other, but also to fix the relationship with creation. And it shows up very early and through all of his plans. Genesis 9, right after the flood. Story of the flood. Definitely a story where creation and people are not getting along, right? And you remember that after the flood, God shows the sign of the rainbow and makes a covenant. Do you remember that that covenant is not just with people, it's also with the natural world. 
Genesis 9:16. Listen. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the covenant between God and all the living creatures of every kind upon the earth. God is stabilizing creation and stabilizing its relationship with us. He's pushing back against the curse. Later in the book of Exodus, when the people of God are about to go into the promised land, God gives them all sorts of laws. A lot of those laws are about restoring our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. A lot of those laws are about restoring relationship with each other. Do not steal, do not kill. But there's also laws about restoring the relationship with creation. Don't abuse your animals. When you have your fields, let them lie fallow once in a while. Don't overstress the land. In the law, God is trying to push back and remove the curse. The prophets. Prophets call us into proper relationship with God. Okay, put away your idolatry. Prophets call us into good relationships with each other. Do justice, love kindness. But the prophets also talk about the restoration of creation and that relationship. They talk about the desert bursting into bloom and streams flowing in the dry places. Isaiah 35. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground, a bubbling spring. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. God will change the curse. And that brings us to Jesus. What about Jesus? We know that Jesus came to restore our relationship with God. We know that he came to restore our relationship with each other. Is there anything in the work of Jesus which shows that he's interested in also restoring our relationship with the natural world? Can you think of anything? It's his miracles. In his miracles, Jesus shows he's deeply concerned with the natural world and our relationship with it. Often when we think of his miracles, we think of his miracles just as displays of power, right? Something that he does that is dazzling, that proves that he's the son of God. That's true. But that's only half of what Jesus is doing in his miracles. In his creational miracles, Jesus is also foreshadowing the redemption of creation. Okay? So for example, when Jesus performs a healing miracle, when he heals a blind person, he's foreshadowing the day when the curse on our bodies will be lifted and we will be whole. Foreshadowing the day when the curse will be taken away. When Jesus rescues the disciples from the Sea of Galilee, they're in conflict with creation in that boat. And Jesus says to the waters, peace be still. He's foreshadowing the day when we will be in proper communion with creation and we will be at peace. Here's an interesting one. In his miracles of abundance, you know what miracles I'm talking about when I talk about miracles of abundance? Like the feeding of the 5,000, okay? The turning of water into wine, because when Jesus turned water into wine, he made a lot of wine. That was an abundant amount of wine. And also the fishing miracles, right, where Jesus has his disciples have a big catch. What's, what are those miracles about? What are they foreshadowing? Those miracles are Jesus taking the toil out of creation, right? In the beginning, the earth was supposed to yield up its food easily, without toil. In those miracles, Jesus is restoring creation to its original abundance. He's removing the power of the curse. 
and showing what he intends for the new creation. And finally, when Jesus takes the crown of thorns upon his head, he is taking the curse that we just read about when thorns and thistles infest the ground in Genesis chapter 3. You know what makes this point really well? C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis talks about those miracles of abundance and shows how they foreshadow. He talks about, for instance, the miracle of turning water into wine. And he says, you know what? When Jesus does that miracle, he doesn't actually break the laws of creation. In fact, he says, every, if you like wine, every single glass of wine that you've ever had has been a product of the same miracle that Jesus did at the wedding feast. Changing water into wine. Every single glass. How's that so? Well, the Lord makes the water come down from heaven as rain, waters the plants, the vines in Napa Valley, the vines grow and they yield the fruit. The fruit takes, comes wine, and lo and behold, the water has been changed into wine. Nothing's changed in Jesus' miracle. It's just been sped up. It's just that the abundance of the new creation has been brought forward into the presence. The curse is being removed. In wearing the crown of thorns, in the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, and in turning water into wine, Jesus is showing us that he's the Lord of the natural world, and he has come to make all things new. I want to say one more thing this morning. Um, in Genesis 3, there were, there were two things that were specifically cursed by God, two images that showed the curse. One was the thorns, and the other was the dust, right? talked about the thorns. What is the dust? Well, the dust is the curse as it pertains to the part of the natural world which we are most intimate with, our bodies. The dust is the sense in which the natural world is corrupted and broken in our own bodies because that relationship is complicated too. We have a complicated relationship with our bodies. Sometimes that relationship is good and sometimes it is not. And uh, as the older you get, the more it is not. I remember the feeling of being young. Being able to run what felt like forever. The feeling that you could leap over a wall without much effort. The, the sharpness of all your senses. Now that I'm over the hump of middle age, um, what I feel most keenly is the diminishment of all those things, right? Sight, hearing, my knee, which won't let me play basketball anymore, and which I fear may never let me play soccer again, which I love so much. And even as I say that, I know there are people out there who are saying in their minds, just you wait, Buster. <laughs> now, what is that? That's the voice of the dust. That's the voice of that curse of the dust rising up in us, inevitably inserting itself in my life and in yours, and there's nothing we can do to stop it. Now, for many people in this world, that is a cause of despair and hopelessness. For many people in the world, the pressure of that dust, the diminishment of our bodies, makes them do foolish things in midlife. But we are Advent people, and our hope does not die that easily. 
We have seen the light of the world get laid in a dusty stable. And as Jesus grew up, he didn't just calm the waters, he kicked the doors off the grave. He didn't just wear the crown of thorns. He allowed himself to be laid in the dust and he was raised from the dust to break that curse. So we may limp and our joints may ache and we may ask you to repeat yourself in the narthex and we may groan when we get out of a chair but we will sing joy to the world at the top of our lungs because we know that our Lord has come that he's come to take away the curse. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of these bodies and for this world. You know all the ways in which we love this life and we love the created world. You know the way in which the created world moves us. But Lord, we also feel the threat and the diminishment of these things. Lord, it is good to come before you today and remember the power of your promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you removed the curse. Pray, Lord, that we may be people of life, even in this world full of dust. Amen.